0: There are wonderful programs that are set up for two or five years and sort of wither on the vine. But if you can leverage your donations or your investments to sustain positive change over time, that to me is really the holy grail of of great philanthropy.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Lucas Haynes, is working on using philanthropy to protect US democracy. He has a career that started with foreign policy, including writing speeches for Madeleine Albright, and then working for Foundations, where he ended up running the David Rockefeller Fund. Lucas now has his own donor advisory practice called Leveraged Philanthropy. I asked him how he came to focus on democracy now and what he's learned from that. If you're interested in the funding of progressive pro-democracy organizations, you should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Lucas Haynes of Leveraged Philanthropy. Lucas, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure.
0: So I grew up in the Lower East Side and East Village of New York City in the late 70s and 80s. I benefited from great public schools from Head Start through high school, and I even went to public universities for college and grad school. My father was a professor at New York University. My mother hustled for different part-time income streams before becoming a real estate agent, which she worked very hard at, but seemed to enjoy. My brother and I were latchkey kids, as they used to call us after school, grabbing a slice of pizza on the way home. Money was always pretty tight, but my parents were very frugal and very engaged with both of us. My career really has three chapters so far, the first 10 years was focusing on US foreign policy and some work overseas in the Balkans and West Africa. That peaked with an exciting year as a speechwriter for Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Then, when the Supreme Court handed the presidency to George Bush, I had to start a new chapter because I was a Clinton political appointee. I did volunteer early in 2003 for Barack Obama's US Senate campaign in Chicago. And I worked on a foreign policy committee of John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004. But for the last 20 years, my full-time work has been as a foundation grant maker for three different foundations, including MacArthur Foundation Chicago, and then culminating as CEO of the David Rockefeller Fund for seven years. And then in February of this year, I built on work we had begun at Rockefeller and became a full-time donor advisor for both political and philanthropic investment.
1: That's about as organized a biography as I've heard in 800 some of these. So I appreciate that. And it's an interesting one as well. And I'm particularly interested, as you might guess, in the last chapter, because we intersect a lot there in our interest in protecting democracy right now. And I've talked to a fair number of funders who are interested in that field. And I'm glad that you are as well, because even though I feel a little relieved by what happened in the recent election, I think that we still got a lot of challenges. I think everybody knows that. I wanna ask you just a few questions about that career path because I'm always interested in how people get from a more or less regular childhood to the heights that you've found. You went to Stuyvesant was the public high school. I did. What were you interested in as a high school kid?
0: So I think the the things that stand out in, in retrospect and relate to to what I would end up doing were forensics, speaking, and mock trial and moot court. Those were were exciting activities. It's known for math and science, and I wasn't particularly strong in in either, but. It also offered a a terrific, well-rounded liberal arts education. And I think I found my people who tended to be, you know, progressive, middle class folks like myself. And I definitely developed an early interest in politics, although I wasn't particularly involved in student government at that
1: point. Why William and Mary? And how was that?
0: it's a variety of reasons as as it often is i had fairly heavy pressure to go to nyu to benefit from tuition remission i was really interested in getting outside of new york city in fact i did a gap year before college and william and mary was a terrific sort of compromise financially being a public university with lower tuition rates but I also remember being very determined to get outside of the the liberal bubble that was New York City in the late 1980s and to get closer to Washington, D.C. and to get a better sense of the body politic in this country. And at, at William & Mary, I had a you know, terrific benefit of a fairly liberal faculty from your marquee institutions that was in an interesting sort of reverse dialogue with a more conservative student body. I often found myself on the side of the faculty, you know, ideologically, but it was it was really healthy to, to be immersed in sort of the Virginia culture for, for college years.
1: Why international relations?
0: Partly because my parents had spent a lot of time overseas. I was born in Salzburg, Austria, while they were working at a terrific organization called the Salzburg Seminar, now the Salzburg Global Seminar. So I grew up with lots of stories about their travel. My father was a Fulbright in Japan, in Indonesia, and I just had a kind of wanderlust to see the world and and all those places I'd grown up hearing about. But it was also, you know, a really exciting time—the early '90s—in in world events, and so the opportunity to to get involved in post-Cold War foreign policy was also exciting. After college, what came next? So I worked for a year at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which is a wonderful policy research institution. And I had the benefit of a tremendous mentor, the president of the endowment, an ambassador, former ambassador and former State Department official named Mort Abramowitz, who actually was was the mentor and boss of Samantha Power, who was the intern that preceded me. These are paid internships. They were much harder to come by back back in those days and gave me the opportunity to, to do really substantive work right out of college and be very immersed in the most critical policy issues of the time at that time, the war in former yugoslavia the u s response to Somalia and haiti. I also had had a chance to do a couple of internships, one at the Washington Post, where I basically wrote to the correspondent Julia Preston and said, "I can live in New York, but my parents and i'd I'd love to get closer to these issues I've been studying in Washington." and and that was a, a great insight to how un diplomacy was working at that time around yugoslavia bosnia somalia this all happened before graduate school
1: and were you thinking for sure you would go to graduate school
0: i was it was really a a debate in my mind between law school and a program that was focused on international policy one of the you know us programs or I ended up at Oxford studying
1: international relations. How was that different than school here?
0: Well, first of all, intellectually, academically, there's much more emphasis on the historical approach to understanding events and analyzing international relations through a historical lens. There's much less international relations theory which at that time was more associated with the U.S. programs. But the cultural experience of being at Oxford with English graduate students, but also a very international mix, and then this dynamic community of of American expat grad students. I wasn't a Rhodes or a Marshall, but I knew quite a few of them. I lived with, with a couple of them. So folks like Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, Gina Raimondo, former governor of Rhode Island, now Commerce Secretary, Cory Booker, Rachel Maddow. These are all people in the community in the mid-90s.
1: Those are all people, like no names now. Did it feel to you then like you were amongst this kind of caliber of people that were really going someplace? I think because of
0: Bill Clinton's Rhodes Scholarship, well-known Rhodes Scholarship and path to the presidency, there was a notion that somebody might, pop out of the crowd and and be a future political talent, but nobody in particular, frankly, at that point. And I I just came to appreciate really bright, talented, charismatic people who saw themselves doing meaningful things in, in public life. That's the main impression.
1: Was it challenging at all to be amongst these people with that kind of pedigree, you know, the Rhodes and the Marshall and so on?
0: It was because... Um, you know, just pure intellectual firepower on the one hand, which was was challenging and inspiring to my own study and, and social kind of navigation. But there's sort of this reputation that goes with the Rhodes Scholarships and, and the Marshall and the Trumans and, and not being one of them was definitely something I was aware of. And then over time, I just got to know terrific people and and friends and housemates and To this day, one of my best friends is a Rhodes
1: Scholar from William & Mary. Did it seem like the British students were better or less well-prepared than these people you were coming over from U.S. with? No, and I should say
0: that the graduate and undergraduate communities are very distinct, and so there wasn't nearly as much social mixing with the British undergraduates. And the graduate community at Oxford is very international, so I, I got to know just incredible talents from Canada and South Africa and, and all of the Commonwealth countries that also pull Rhodes Scholars.
1: You mentioned earlier that you end up as a speech writer for Madeleine Albright, who was Secretary of State back then. What was the path from Oxford to that?
0: Well, first of all, there, were, there was a, a more difficult period going going home living at home to 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 work on a, a dissertation. But the most interesting path was directly from Oxford, where I went to the headquarters of Oxfam and I said, I've been studying the wars in the Balkans now for a couple of years, and I'd love to get closer to them. Do you have any work for me? I even offered to drive a truck. And the head of the former Yugoslavia program at Oxfam said, looking at my resume that I could do better than a truck and I found myself as as first an analyst a political analyst in Sarajevo and then as as happens with emergency programs in challenging environments like Bosnia I was promoted to acting regional representative for a large program in the former Yugoslavia I went on from Bosnia to to work for Oxfam and Liberian Sierra Leone, and I was evacuated by the U.S. Marines from Sierra Leone in 1997. Then found myself back trying to finish this this dissertation for Oxford. And as serendipity would have it, a woman that I'd met who was working for the State Department in Bosnia writes to me and says the White House is looking for a speechwriter. I did an audition speech for that job. I heard nothing. <laughs> they needed somebody with security clearance immediately, but they liked the speech well enough that they sent it on to Madeleine Albright's office where I did another audition speech and, and found myself as a, a junior speechwriter for the last year of the administration.
1: I love the way people's careers unfold with that kind of like acquaintance. And then, of course, you you get all the credit for writing speeches that are good enough to get that kind of notice. And that's the way life can proceed, right?
0: It is. And I used to tell this story to students um, because the lesson to me is to be proactive and pro-social. The woman that, that I refer to named Mona Sutton, who worked for Anthony Lake and Sandy Berger, I met her on a beach in Dubrovnik, and and just made the effort to, to talk to a, another American. Um, and if not for that effort, uh, I surely would not have had the opportunity to write those audition speeches.
1: How was uh, Ms. Albright to work with? I just have the greatest
0: respect for her convictions and her candor. She had a wicked sense of humor, but her life story made her so easy to to write for remember she was the first female secretary of state at that time and whenever we would write about her her personal story to inspire girls and and women around the world the response was was just tremendous but back to her candor she just grew up understanding fascism understanding dictators in her bones and so whether it was a saddam or a milosevic or even a a putin who she met early in his career she was just very clear-eyed about the role that these actors can have on the world stage and the need to, to stand up to to power and bullies boldly and
1: confidently do you think about her now when we face the the trumpists in this country i know she has that book fascism a warning that is fairly recent does that knowledge she had about dictators inform at all your current interests or the way you think about combating absolutely and this
0: is another lesson from my oxford sort of academic work is on the one hand you have to take the long view but on the other you know historical patterns repeat and i think one of the lessons i take from the the heady optimism, multilateral idealism of the early post-Cold War period is that great power politics can rear their, their ugly heads time and again. In a way, Madeleine Albright would have been the right figure for this period of US, Russia, China, great power foreign policy politics, and the country, and, and the Democratic Party in particular, really, really had a great loss with Madeline's passing.
1: Yep. What came next for you after that? I
0: found myself in Nashville, Tennessee on election night, riding the roller coaster of the Gore tie in 2000. And I really had to sort of scramble to, to figure out what my next step would be without a job as W. Bush took office. Fortunately, Samantha Power, who I'd come to know in the Balkans, offered me a terrific opportunity to go to the Kennedy School for a year and and do some writing and really think proactively about the next step. And I was lucky to to find myself a job at the MacArthur Foundation in Chicago in early 2002, where they were looking for a grant-making program officer who had experience of Washington policy and non-governmental organizations and think tanks and who could think about how to to deploy grants in a way that that drove policy change as efficiently and effectively as possible.
1: That's kind of the move that you make into the the philanthropic part of your career was it's like there was an opening and you were opportunistic Well, I had the benefit
0: of of a high school job at a foundation in the neighborhood, so I knew about foundations in a way that a lot of grad students and and early career aspirants didn't. I I deliberately looked at the UN system, the think tank world, and looked for a job in philanthropy, and so I did seek it out, but I I had no idea how satisfying a grant-making career might be at that point.
1: What did you like about it? Well,
0: first of all, to be immersed in the foreign policy and international security issues of the time on a full-time basis and have this 30,000-foot view of the ecosystem that tries to influence policy change, the think tanks, the, the advocacy organizations, the foundations, the government policymakers in exile in between political administrations, It's a fantastic vantage point if you're interested in in policy. And those early years of making grants and shaping grant-making strategy that was relevant to policy would would really inform my approach to philanthropy for the next 20 years.
1: And you got to establish a New York office for them? I did.
0: I was looking to get back to New York City because my mother was in poor health And I interviewed with the Ford Foundation, and even before the results came back, I mentioned this to the head of the MacArthur Foundation, and he said, hold up, I've wanted the foundation to have a presence in New York, so why don't you open an office for us?
1: Was that uh, fulfilling or useful? How did that go?
0: It was exciting to be back in New York. I mean, the UN is, is centered there, obviously, and there are so many influential national policy and advocacy organizations. And it felt like a homecoming after
1: many years abroad. So at this point, are you feeling like you're pretty happy with how your career is going? And Well, on the one hand,
0: I was happily married with young children and entering that phase of my career. And philanthropy is, is a nice, stable platform to raise a family. On the other hand, I had worked for Barack Obama's Senate campaign very early, marching with him in the Memorial Day parade of 2003 when he was running fifth in the Democratic primary. So for a political animal who saw the power of presidential appointments, it was difficult, honestly, to to see so many people go to work for his administration and not go back because I had... I had learned how exciting a career, how impactful a career could be at the highest levels of government foreign policy. In retrospect, I made the right decisions for myself and, and for my family because I would lose a, a daughter in 2014 before she turned five years old. Oh, no. And in retrospect, um, you know, I, I don't regret having. You know, ninety-eight percent of those those bedtime stories with her, and a job where I I was in much more
1: control of my hours and my travel. You moved to a different philanthropy. There's a step or two between there and the Rockefeller Fund, right? Just one. Yeah.
0: Um, I actually went back to work at the foundation where I'd worked in high school as a vice president, and I sort of traded up responsibility. Overseeing now three programs. Actually, it it began with two programs, even though I was trading down budget. The grant making budgets were not as large as MacArthur, but I had the opportunity to, to learn about climate change and get involved in New York City community organizing support. So that was a very meaningful chapter at the Mertz Gilmore Foundation.
1: How do you end up getting the job as CEO of the David Rockefeller Fund?
0: I just responded to an open call to to apply. And I went into the interviews in the fall of 2014 with a, a real strong need to change what I was doing daily. This was still six or seven months after my daughter had died. And I just felt that need to, to take on a new challenge. And I, I met this incredible family in the the fourth and fifth generation Rockefeller board members related to David Rockefeller, senior. They responded to my, my background. I could tell from a very early stage in the interviewing process that this was a, just a, an incredible group of human beings that shared my values. And I said recently at a reception, they had to, to mark my tenure that they took a risk on me because I was still in a, a fairly unsettled, fragile state after my daughter died. I'll forever be grateful for that.
1: There's a, something called the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Is that related or, because I had interviewed Keisha from that fund at one point, and I'm not clear about. They, the, are,
0: they are separate grant-making, endowed grant-making foundations that co are co-located in one building. So the simplest way to think about the Rockefeller ecosystem of foundations is the Rockefeller Foundation is the, the biggest and the oldest and has very little family board oversight. The Rockefeller Brothers Fund is, is the next largest and oldest, where there is still quite a bit of family involvement on the board. The Rockefeller Family Fund is yet another with another generation of cousins and and board trustees. And then the David Rockefeller Fund is is the relatively smallest, but still uh, a lot of board family
1: governance in place. It just seems like a lesson not to make huge sums of money because it's gonna cause trouble for generations. You're gonna have to deal with that, just the effort of giving it away. And the story there is that
0: each successive generation has different sort of priorities in, philanthropically and and seeks opportunity to channel the tremendous resource passed down through that family in ways that are newly relevant to the problems of our time. And that, that same trend, generational transition was happening at the David Rockefeller Fund with the children of David Rockefeller Sr. Really handing over the reins of of board leadership to to their children, and actually, while I was there, we diversified the board quite a bit and grew the number of non-family trustees. Um, so, so that's a, a different kind of transition that's taking place, and one that I
1: that that the the family is very committed to. Do you think the team was making good decisions about how to grant uh, the processes? Saying has it become really idiosyncratic to family members or is it kind of rigorous data-based process? What's, what's it like in this particular one? And what were you trying to make it?
0: Well, the, the Rockefeller family has a terrific tradition of delegating decision-making authority and, and deferring largely to professional staff. And that starting point allows staff to listen to the grantees and the grant seekers in the fields where they're working to develop strategy and and convey back to the board what the field needs so at a time when philanthropy is is moving towards more trust-based multi-year general operating support and and genuine partnership with grantees this was was happening at the David Rockefeller fund and we were innovating in in ways that I think were exciting. For example, they've had a long commitment to justice system transformation in the United States, and we created a fellowship for formerly incarcerated justice-involved individuals to come into the foundation and uh, inform our grant making, while at the same time getting professional training opportunity. So that's just one example of a, a really meaningful initiative that the board was fully supportive of and continues to this day.
1: What are you most proud of from your time there?
0: I think that fellowship, honestly, because I knew on some level that this was a good thing to do to create these opportunities. It's so hard for citizens in our country who've, who've served their time to get the professional opportunity and livelihood that they seek. But I I really underestimated honestly just how fabulous these fellows would be and how much they would bring to the quality of the, the programming and in retrospect why shouldn't they have been outstanding they had you know often come from very difficult circumstances persevered through incarceration sought out educational opportunities sought out this fellowship interviewed and then feeling like fish out of water, sort of adapted to the culture of a professional foundation and a Rockefeller family board, I mean, these are extraordinary individuals and they should be getting as
1: much opportunity as our society can afford them. So what was the view inside the foundation as Trump uh, comes, you know, runs for office, comes to power, starts operating the way he operates? what were you guys thinking about democracy and Trumpism? And, uh, you know, obviously there's similar things going on internationally as well. It's a
0: really insightful question because it really is the origin of my going deeper into progressive power building. Climate change is the crisis that unites a lot of the Rockefeller foundations. And with Trump's arrival, the pretense that meaningful federal climate policy could advance was just completely abandoned. He systematically went about dismantling the Obama era climate policies and appointed oil and gas lobbyists to run the EPA to take just one agency example. And so it became very clear that if we were going to make any meaningful impact on climate policy going forward, we had to support organizations that were at least putting up resistance to this relentless rollback of Obama-era climate policies, but even more to the point, you know, help build the kind of power to advance climate and, and energy, clean energy policies in the states and in cities, and begin to to sort of create the opportunity for another federal turn at the wheel of climate policy. So one of the, the little-known facts about philanthropy is that 501c4 social welfare organizations can receive tax-exempt dollars from foundations. They exist as social welfare organizations under the IRS tax code, and much of their expenditure, their primary purpose, which is a, a, an IRS term, is, is charitable. So when foundations provide that charitable dollar, it frees up the precious non-charitable dollar from other donors to do the other part of the C4 work. You have to be very, very careful in your accounting and documentation as as a grant maker, but you can absolutely do it even with a small staff like the one we had, and when you do so, you're really enabling 501 C4s to engage in the kind of power building work that that's necessary at a state and federal level in this crazy competition for for policy and power in this country
1: what are a couple of things that you funded that were in that category there's a terrific network
0: of of state-based work the climate and clean energy equity fund which is a great example of educating grassroots constituencies about climate impacts and clean energy opportunities at a state level, but in multiple states around the country. And really educating voters about the candidates and who is with their interests or against their interest in terms of climate and energy policy. That organization and network has grown since we started funding them and actually received the attention of much larger donors in recent years.
1: i I talked to the people who run the Yale Center for Climate Communications and the George Mason Center, a similar name. And it seems like there's a lot of really good work going on in trying to combat the climate denialism or whatever you wanna call it. Were there other things in that area that you guys were looking at or or funding? I was part
0: of supporting some of the early research when I was at the Mertz-Gilmore Foundation on what Exxon knew and the systematic decades-long effort to deny climate science and and confuse the public. The Rockefeller Family Fund supported investigative journalism at, at the Columbia Journalism School and and really took that up several notches. So I I agree we've made a lot of progress on basic understanding of both climate science and impacts but also in in understanding how the oil and gas industry has has worked against the public interest for decades. An interesting area that we funded that's still underinvested I think is the appreciation of national security and international security impacts of climate change. And my theory, when I first started funding that, back at Mertz-Gilmore as well, was that until you activated the power of the national security establishment, especially the Pentagon, as long as you relied on the EPA as sort of your power center for policymaking in Washington, we would be at at a disadvantage And interestingly, even through the Trump years, the work to analyze and understand and embed better policy and programs in the national security community on climate continued, sort of way below the Trump radar. And just recently, the Army, Air Force, and Navy released climate plans that are the result of Biden administration policy, but have their roots in investment and policy research that goes back to even W. Bush and and Chuck Hagel as as defense secretary. It's sort of one of the best kept secrets in Washington is the extent to which the admirals and the generals and the armed services understand climate change and its impacts and how they're going to have to respond. Because it's a set of agencies that runs on facts and science and basic physics and politicians and political posturing and climate denial just just don't hold water in that environment.
1: What's really clear is that if Trump comes back, and maybe if a DeSantis-type person comes back, they're going to be a lot more thorough in changing the civil service, changing the federal agencies, that whole Schedule F stuff that was reported. There's going to be systematic attempts to make much more substantial change than they got a swing at last time. It's a very real threat. You're absolutely right. So tell me about this decision to leave Rockefeller and go out on your own. What occasioned that? Well, part of it
0: was my own sort of pandemic period sense of languishing after several years, you know, in the job and just a a sort of internal stirring to try Something new where I'd have have more passion, but honestly, you know the the racial justice reckoning in this country after George Floyd's murder, combined with the threats around the 2020 election, converged in me to both remove myself as another straight white middle aged male leader of institution without term limits and apply myself to the democracy crisis in the same way that I, I've i been working on the climate crisis for, for many years. And I wasn't sure I'd find opportunity to, to advise donors, but once I, I found a couple, it just felt like the right time. And I don't regret that decision given what was at stake in this, this recent election with so many election deniers on the ballot.
1: You called your... Organization leveraged philanthropy. Why?
0: Because to me, good philanthropy is always leveraged in the sense of activating policy or public finance or other private philanthropic dollars. It goes without saying that all philanthropy should be impactful. What's much harder is to find the kind of leverage to make one's donor dollars go further and then to sustain the impact over time. There are wonderful programs that are set up for two or five years and sort of wither on the vine, but if you can leverage your donations or your investments to sustain positive change over time, that to me is really the holy grail of, of great philanthropy.
1: How'd you go about finding donors to advise in this area? Again, serendipity. I agreed to do a talk for a grantee
0: of the David Rockefeller Fund, a dinner talk. And one of my clients was sitting in the corner quietly, taking in what I was saying about climate change and the the role of the oil and gas industry. And he came up to me afterwards and we got into a, a conversation that is going on a couple of years now about his desire to to be a an impactful donor in the climate and sustainability space and he introduced me to a former business colleague of his who is another client sometimes just showing up
1: just being in the right place at the right time with some knowledge and experience to to make someone listen to you i think you came to my attention i'm not sure but i think with an Article you wrote in the Stanford Social Innovation Review called Philanthropy to Protect U.S. Democracy. I read it. Why did you write that? What are you trying to say there? Well, I was
0: given a, a non residential fellowship at, at Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society. And I wanted to, to take some time from my, my daily work at the DR Fund and in, as a donor advisor. To, to think about the broad threats, systemic threats, you know, mid to long-term threats that we're dealing with. And so the the first purpose was just to step back and look at the big picture. But as I thought about it, I realized that in my role, with my experience, and then the platform of, of Stanford and that publication, the best I could do was to try to bring more money off the sidelines. As long as we have this system with money pouring into politics, we need as many donors, major donors as possible to understand what's at stake and to understand the tools that are at their disposal to, to get in the game or to be on the battlefield as your podcast indicates. And one of the things that struck me as I thought about the role of the Rockefeller brothers fund and, and the other democracy, supporting foundations, is that there's this notion that 501c3, grant-making, nonpartisan taxes of grant-making, is the main answer to the ills of the democracy. And I think that's partly right. We have so much long-term work to do to make this democracy more inclusive and more responsive to what voters really want. And gerrymandering, redistricting, you know would just be money and politics reform are just two two powerful examples there. But as long as there are major donors, 18 of the top 25 donors in this election, according to the New York Times were Republican, are supporting a party that refused to accept an election peacefully and was systematically denying the legitimacy of Biden's election and putting hundreds of election deniers on the ballot, there is a big role for for political giving. And we have to be as smart as possible about that political giving to, to defend the democracy from these threats.
1: Is there a feeling among this kind of category of people, very wealthy people that are philanthropic, that politics is sort of yucky and they want to stay away from it?
0: Absolutely. For some quarter of donors, especially donors who who are part of family foundations and sit on family foundation boards, politics has always been seen as, as messy and ugly. And I, I think there are a great many political donors who, who would just much rather have money in politics reform and, and see political giving be much less important. But there's also a large community of donors who understand that this is the game that that the US tax and and political system has set up and if you're not playing that game as as well as you can play it you're basically losing to the other side
1: how much is like the risk of being attacked when sort of partisan donations become public as they often do depending on what route they take play into this. Because when I've talked to donor advisors, sometimes they are pretty forthcoming, but mostly they may not tell me who their donors are. They may um, say, feel free to ask me about my democracy stuff, but not about the person I work for is partisan giving. I mean, he or she doesn't want that part to be a focus. There's a kind of necessary carefulness in their view about going public with this fight. I mean it's very opposite to like Peter Thiel going out and saying I'm putting 10 million into this Senate race. I'm putting 10 million into that Senate race. And we have some people who do that on our side, but it seems like there's a, a nervousness about it.
0: I think you're generally right. The Peter Thiels and the and the Koch brothers and the George Soros's and the Mike Bloomberg's, you know, these are these are the the exceptions. They all get
1: demonized whichever side they're on.
0: Most donors want to be out of the spotlight, and maybe that would go for those, those names as well. I don't know to what extent they, they seek it, but, but for the rest, you know, seeing how the media and our hyper-polarized media environment treats those donors, it definitely has a chilling effect and leads to, to most donors, the vast majority of donors, I think wanting to be well below the public radar.
1: In your article, you cite a whole bunch of different organizations that you're kind of pointing people to, asking them to enter this arena in this way. Here here are a variety of things that could be helpful. How'd you go about surveying that space? It's quite broad. There are many worthy organizations and people. How did you learn about it? Well, I had the benefit of a few years of landscape
0: research and networking with the David Rockefeller Fund because there are so many organizations that have both C3 and C4 counterparts. The basic answer is is networking with those who are doing this work in the states and are in relationship with like-minded operators in other states. But donors and and foundation grantmakers, there's a lot of great information sharing across portfolios. Most donors and grantmakers who care about democracy realize how precious these dollars are beyond the, the big money that goes into political ad buys and political campaigns. The sort of system reform and infrastructure building dollars are, are precious, and we all want to make as, as efficient and effective use of those dollars. So there's, there's a lot of generous sharing of information. I'm on the board of an organization stood up around 2020 called One for Democracy, whose purpose was to bring more dollars into defending democracy and promoting pro-democracy candidates. And that's another source. I was on inside the democracy Alliance tent as a partner with the David Rockefeller fund. So that's another rich source of information.
1: With that kind of work over time. And have you come to theories about who is most effective or what dollars are most useful in this time? in the political arena, in the pro-democracy arena in the US? That's a, a
0: big question with lots of potential answers. As a general matter, I believe that progressives spend an awful lot of money on these ad buys that essentially evaporate cycle after cycle and way too little money investing in the durable, year over year long lasting human capital and and systems data systems and networks that allow campaigns and allied organizations to be most effective with dollars an example would be these donor alliances that are that are set up in various they've been set up in various states i think you've had strategic victory fund scott anderson on on the podcast and yes the investments that that they've made in in states to network allied donors in constant conversation with those who are doing the work of registering voters, educating voters, turning out voters uh, year over year and retaining the knowledge, the data, improving the data systems and data analysis and learning from cycle to cycle rather than treating each two-year or four-year election cycle as a new starting point, as many donors and investors
1: do. I hear that refrain from lots of corners that I talk to, from other donor advisors, from some political consultants, particularly ones that are digital internet sort of based consultants, but also just people who are maybe going against the grain a little bit. Is there any effort or would it make sense to have an effort to change political consulting? One idea is, is to put more money into the organization building and the groups that canvas year-round and different things that build up the infrastructure that last. But it's not clear to me beyond the profit incentive for like a media consultant why we can't make big changes in the allocation of expenditures by campaigns. I mean, there's the Analyst Institute, there are are studies about what works best, but somehow people are still saying, we are spending too much money on TV, we're spending too much money on different kinds of ads, and it's not clear how valuable they are, or it even is sometimes clear that they're not valuable. How do we go about changing that? And we're talking about literally billions.
0: I think it's really a key question. And I don't have a great answer at the moment. I mean, typically, cycle after cycle, there's this notion that we can grow the pie. I think we've realized, you know, in the, in the Trump through 2022 era that the pie is awfully big. I mean, Democrats, progressives are spending billions and keeping up especially in the small dollar realm. Though, as I said, 18 of the top 25 major donors are Republican, according to the New York Times and the Sunshine Transparency Projects that that keep an eye on that. The more compelling opportunity is to make the dollars that we have more impactful and to to take a, a really critical look at how effectively those ad dollars are flowing and those campaign dollars are being spent I've not worked on that side, on the ad buys, consulting for those purposes, or on the campaign spending. I don't want to speak ill in an unqualified way of, of some of the smart strategies that, that clearly have their role to play. But if you just consider the hundreds of millions that Bloomberg spent in 2020 that generated almost no return for Democrats, clearly there is an opportunity here.
1: Are you talking about on his own campaign? both his own
0: and, you know, in in service of of Democrats when he stopped running. Lucas,
1: I'm wondering if I'm getting to the heart of what you are trying to do. If you wanted to explain to people what your new work is, who would you want to reach and what would you want to tell them? I'm having a little bit of of
0: immediate post-election disorientation because so much was at stake and I'm still processing what we've learned and haven't turned entirely to the, to the next you know, set of challenges.
1: Well, maybe you could say a thing or two about what you did in, in this cycle and then what you're starting to think about going forward.
0: So the, the focus of my work and, and my clients for this last couple of years was on the, the key battleground states where outcomes, would determine who is in charge of running the elections in 2024. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, the statewide offices, governors, attorneys general, secretaries of the state, also some state legislative investment for the long term because state legislatures have such a, a critical role in setting voting rights and, and election process rules. And then you know there was some up-ballot accrual of benefit to the US Senate candidates in those states as well. It was a really focused strategy to try to elect as many defenders of electoral integrity to prevent electoral subversion in 2024. Happily, the defenders of democracy showed up and, and did their job and voters rewarded them. That was frankly
1: a better set of outcomes than I expected. The more I know about the space, the less I am clear about what worked and what didn't work. I mean, people have their theories, but like the amount of surprise about the actual results, because we all follow the same polls, and the lack of clarity about which, which things that we put money into, it is still one of the most murky areas to try to understand, did we have an impact through these campaigns? Political scientists aren't even really sure if campaigns don't just mostly wash out and go back to certain fundamental variables. Good investment absolutely did did
0: make an impact. I'll talk about a few examples. First, pro-voter policies work. So whether it's early voting or vote by mail or automatic voter registration, millions more voters were casting ballots conveniently this year and and each of the last two national elections. Also, pro-democracy measures were on the ballot and they won. So in Michigan, for example, additional protections for voting, creating a nine-day early voting period, funding ballot drop boxes going forward, this ballot measure won. Election denialism, very much a, a threat where there was some debate about to what extent we should campaign against it. It's very clear in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, that in addition to obviously the issue of, of abortion and reproductive rights, those candidates who, who campaigned to defend the integrity of the electoral system and voting rights were rewarded. And I think particularly by, by young people, who saw the 370 candidates who'd expressed doubts about the 2020 election. Too many Republicans, you know. I think 200 or so, still won seats out of that 370, but, but those who were in position to have the most impact on 2024
1: generally were defeated. So tell me about how you think about this going forward. Obviously the big thing is 2024. It's impossible to overstate how big that election is going to be. We don't know yet who the contenders are going to be.
0: Well, I had had a theory of the case going in that has been reinforced by some of the data coming out of this week. One is that we Democrats have to expand the map. It looks like Ohio and Florida and perhaps even Texas are even harder for Democrats to compete in as a result of this week's returns. And so we have a a narrower path to the Electoral College now. It it runs through the three battlegrounds, Minnesota, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. But I think there's a lesson, you know, in John Fetterman's successful campaign that Democrats have to campaign and compete everywhere, not just in the cities and suburbs, but also in, in rural counties if not to win those counties, but to undermine the,
1: or to erode the, the gains that Republicans keep making. They're rolling up landslides, like just like 50 point landslides across most of the counties in most of the states.
0: Absolutely. And, and we've done, a, I think, a terrific job in expanding and mobilizing a diverse base, but we simply can't, Succeed nationally and and ever build back a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate without competing again for non-college white voters and competing in in rural counties. And when I say expand the map, I mean getting into red states and building the long-term power plays. That is how the Republicans develop such a dominance. I think coming out of twenty twenty one. They had sixty plus state legislatures out of a hundred, so state legislative power building, expanding the map into rural and red areas, and then political media is a whole other category that that is extremely hard, but one where we've just got to be smarter and begin to build long term strategies.
1: So when you're talking about like the rural stuff, are you thinking about like? Sarah Janes in the Rural Democracy Initiative and Matt Hildreth. He's ruralorganizing.org. There's a whole bunch of people. I've talked to a number of them. I'm sure I haven't talked to others who are trying to put attention on organizing in, in kind of untouched areas. Absolutely. I mean, there was a time not so long ago
0: when Democrats had eight to 10 senators from Nebraska North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming. Iowa. Iowa, these low population Western states. We have to take account of demographic changes that's leading to to younger and more diverse residents in places like Bozeman and Boise, just to name a couple of examples. We have to create ways for candidates in those regions to differentiate themselves from the, the national democratic brand that the media especially right-wing media will tar them with with the decimation of local newspaper and local television it's harder and harder for them to do that but through investing in communications hubs and candidate recruitment and the infrastructure that will keep talented political operatives in these states and encourage talented candidates to run I mean look at the the Montana congressional race Monica Tranel ran much harder against Zinke, you know, Trump, Trump's former cabinet secretary than, than a lot of observers would have thought. And it's because of local infrastructure, local support that creates an enabling environment for a candidate like Monica. We just have to to take a longer view, recognize this is not something where you're gonna find success in two or four or maybe even six years, but over eight or 10 years, there's no doubt in my mind that we can compete, and one of the reasons for that confidence is, is when you look at how popular democratic policies are, especially with younger voters. Poll after poll before this election showed that, that Biden-Harris policies were very, very popular. They need more time to work, obviously. The infrastructure investments, the, the IRA, climate investments are going to take time to, to, to show their benefits. But those benefits are going to show up in a lot of red states and red counties, and and we have to trade on that investment.
1: It's not clear that there's much connection between, I mean, they say good policy make good, makes good politics, but it's not very clear that we're helping people make that connection that it's even going on.
0: Exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, we're going to find a, a really interesting situation next year in which red state governors, and reps are happily receiving the benefits of this massive climate and clean energy investment. And we have to do a much better job of communicating who is responsible for those investments on a strict party line vote, by the way. We're not a single
1: Republican signed up to the IRA. How do you feel the collaboration with other donors, donor advisors is, are you guys working together very well? on these sort of things. You've talked about learning from them, but what's the state of that?
0: There's a rich ecosystem now of pro-democracy donor advisors. And I think we all benefit enormously from each other's information sharing, intelligence gathering, and sharing of of strategy across clients. In general, the donor advising space is, is still underdeveloped. Recently, Schmidt Futures invested in convening something called the P-150, which is, I think, the number for a meaningful network that people stay engaged in. And we had a first convening in Brooklyn last month, and it was very promising because unlike the the more established foundation coordinating in affinity group spaces, there's just not a lot of natural opportunity for us to come together. We're sort of lone operatives, we're small firms working off laptops now in remote settings. I know that I can benefit enormously from being in more conversation with more of my peers.
1: You said you're interested in the media space too. What, what are you thinking of there?
0: Well, I'm, I'm really influenced by Dan Pfeffer's recent book on the MAGA right-wing media ecosystem. It's, it's very clear that with the, the loss of local newspaper, the consolidation of local television by conservative conglomerates and we've always been running behind on on talk radio that progressive media has got to be built up and not just rely on the sort of down the middle mainstream centrist media that has its own bias because it's it's always being gaslit by right-wing media the fact is you know the right-wing media ecosystem a surround sound almost hermetically sealed environment, drove election denial, drove underestimating COVID, drove uh, vaccine skepticism. And we don't have anything like it. We have a mainstream media that, that engages in false equivalence and is not what progressive electeds and candidates need to rely on to get their message out beyond the solid converted base and the choir and to speak to independence and to begin to to penetrate into that right-wing system and begin to explain to more Republican voters what's really going on and and how democratic policy and governance can, can benefit them.
1: Are there any initiatives in that area that you have your eyes on that you think are good? Well, I'm, I think you know about Courier. I interviewed Tara. Uh, about career newsroom, yes, and Eckhies. Eckhies, I know, yes.
0: Those are two two examples. Peter Murray,
1: accelerate change,
0: be another. I mean,
1: the push black and uh, mm-hmm. and a number of other ones under that umbrella.
0: I mean, there. I I think there's some really really exciting, promising, impactful efforts,
1: but but they're they're pretty small. Do you know about Demcast? They help coordinate social media pushes, and I think they're quite interesting, and they, from what I understand, could use funding. There's so many interesting things going on, but the scale is where all, where we're not, you're right, nowhere.
0: What I know at this point is that there's, there's a smattering of philanthropically supported and relatively small efforts. But we have nothing near the commercial scale media investment that you see on the other side. And the result is the right-wing media makes money promoting propaganda, and we end up spending our billions of dollars on ads that go up in smoke with every campaign, and we have to start over
1: it's amazing we can compete at all and so, sometimes
0: i think between the structural democratic deficits of the the senate system and gerrymandering and the right wing and the right wing media deck stacked against us i i agree with you it's really a testament to the quality of a policy and and the fundamental decency of of a majority of americans who see what's happening that we are keeping our head above water but If we're gonna get out of this every two year, every four year battle for a shrinking electoral college map and share of the electorate, we've got to think much bigger, especially in the media
1: space. Well, I hope you're able to move that project forward. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? Maybe what gives me the most pleasure in this work? Lucas, what gives you the most pleasure in this work? It's
0: often nerve wracking and highly stressful and seeing, you know, how how polls and pundits kind of stack the deck against enthusiasm and optimism. So I I really take great comfort in the solidarity and and camaraderie of those incredibly hardworking folks in the trenches, Michigan being one great example. They have been working so hard on on pro-voter, pro-democracy initiatives and to see them run the table on the statewide offices and flip the michigan state legislature for the first time in 40 years 38 years in one chamber and 12 years in the other i'm really inspired by that kind of long-term commitment
1: do you know katie Faye? she's the young woman who pushed the non-partisan redistricting by commission instead of by the republican legislature. And that made a huge difference.
0: It did. And I don't, I don't know her, but I know Amy Chapman and um, John Hoadley. And there's just tr- a tremendous team on the ground. It's truly really a, a case in point, especially given the threats they were up against. I mean, the, the governor faced a kidnapping threat. I mean, for, for goodness sake, but, but the way the, the, the way that Whitmer and Dana Nessel, and Jocelyn Benson run and carry themselves against these scary forces. It's 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 really inspiring. And it makes what I do seem so easy and so privileged.
1: They are really taking risks and putting their bodies on the line. You gotta honor that. Well, Lucas, very good to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? Thank you, Nathaniel, for
0: for doing what you do. This is a tremendous service to the field. I've learned from from guests that you've had on and i'm sure i will continue to
1: thank you for that that was lucas haynes his article about using philanthropy to protect u.s democracy is at ssir.org this is nathaniel g perlman with the great battlefield podcast you can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.